Welcome to another edition of the Future of Content podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas. Uh, today, we're going to get to lesson five, and this is all about how content, content takes new shapes and forms. A um, couple notes. Uh, at some point, you're going to hear me enthusing about the Defenders. Uh, that is because there's a shot on the screen at that point of uh, Daredevil when I'm talking about how content is starting to come out in these short, controlled bursts. And then at another point, I try to remember the name of a uh, web series uh, produced by Louis C.K. It's called Horse and Pete. If you're trying to look that up later, that's what it's called. So without further ado, here is lesson five. We get to lesson five, and that's that content is going to start looking a lot more like Toyota. Here's what I mean. So back in the day, there was this guy, I'm going to screw up his name, Achiri Ono, I believe his name was. And... Toyota was a car company, obviously. They were facing a problem, and it's the problem all car companies face. They had to create cars, which are very expensive to create, and they had to bet that they would make the right amount of cars. If they make too many and no one buys them, now they're in the hole for the cars. But here's the thing, it's very hard to shift how many cars you're gonna make, or if you're gonna make a new model, you have to retool the factory, and it takes like two months, and now you're not making cars for two months, and you have a whole other problem. So it's this very tricky situation. This guy, Chiri Ono, comes up with this idea and says, look, I am going to teach the workers on the floor how to hack their own tools. So if you want to redo how the car is being built, we can turn that around in two weeks. No problem. This becomes a revelation to the point where the stopgap between being able to uh, react to the market was no longer how fast could you turn around the cars, but how fast could you get the data from market research over to the factory. So this completely revolutionized how they made cars. They could basically custom make, we know we're gonna need this many cars, they're gonna need this little tweak, and if we need to make another tweak, two weeks later, you've got it. Fast forward to 2011, I think. And Kevin Smith is about to release his latest movie. It is a self-funded film called Red State, and he is gonna announce at Sundance who gets to distribute the film, right? Movies go to Sundance, there's usually a bidding war. Someone gets the rights to distribute the film. So he has this big press conference, and he announces that he is going to sell the rights to, to distribute the movie to himself for $1, right? Everyone's like, ah, that Kevin Smith, classic Kevin Smith. And they actually pretty, get pretty pissed at him. But the reason he decides to do this is very simple. He says, if I sold this to Miramax or to any other sort of big indie producer, they are going to spend $10 million, $20 million uh, promoting this film to people who do not want to see it. I have made this film. I already know there are not that many people in this country who are gonna wanna see it. Certainly not $20 million worth of marketing, right? What I do know is I can, for maybe closer to $4 million, the cost of the film, go out and find the people who actually wanna see that. And there are plenty of platforms now that can let you know, hey, Wyoming, do you wanna see this? Get up to this number and we'll bring the movie to your theater. And that number, you get to calculate based on how much it's gonna to cost to bring the film to Wyoming. All of a sudden, you have that Toyota parity between what's the demand and how much is it gonna to cost to make it. So it used to be that we would create things like television 
based on these sort of industrial paradigms. Oh, we're going to do 22 episodes because that's how many advertisers we have, and that's the season. That's the way we've always done it. That has nothing to do with what the actual demand is, right? Now, we can be more like Toyota. The content can grow or shrink or be funded or be marketed to the size that is appropriate for the audience because we can find out now who really wants to see it and how much of it do they want to see. So if you think of the old way, right, as the land, I'm going to tell you something, you know, very depressing about King Kong, and it's that King Kong can't really exist. And here's the reason. Because King Kong is awesome. <laughs> King Kong can't exist because once you reach a certain size on land, gravity takes over and you simply can't bear your own weight. In the real world, King Kong would simply collapse under his own weight and just be this pile of bones and flesh on the ground. It would be very sad and very depressing. In the ocean, however, you don't have that constraint. Things can get as big as they want to get. It doesn't really matter which is why the biggest living thing to ever exist is the blue whale, right? Even bigger than the dinosaurs. And that's because it has all of the ocean to move in. And that's what content is like now. And if you look at what's happened to something like the album, the album is one of my favorite examples. So it used to be the album was uh, this, well, it still is, right? But this vinyl thing, right? And the amount of music you could put on it was constricted by the technology, right? You can only fit so many songs on this particular piece of vinyl. Then we got to uh, the CD. And it was like, oh, wow, 14 songs on an album. That's amazing, right? This is so much more filler now. Um, and we had that for a while, right? And then we got to the MP3 and it was like, we could have an infinite number of songs on an album. We don't even have to have, think about albums anymore. We can think about playlists. But what was interesting was the size of the album now started to actually shrink back down to closer to something like 10 songs, maybe 12 songs. It found its natural equilibrium once it was freed of constraints, and it was really just about what the artist was interested in or what the audience was interested in. And you can see that with the television season, web series, how podcasts work. There are all these looser forms now where you're not constrained about how big or how small a thing has to be because of some arbitrary constraint. So that makes things interesting for what we call things, right? So if you take a show like Sherlock, right, you can say, well, it's a TV show. Why? Well, because it shows up on TV, right? Okay. Yeah, but there's really only, you know, each episode is an hour and a half long. That's a lot more like a movie, right? And there's only three episodes every season, and you have to wait a few years before they come back. Also, I don't necessarily watch it on TV. I can watch it really on anything. So why am I calling it a TV show versus a movie versus a web series versus anything, right? And it's not that those distinctions don't have value, it's just they're not defined the same way that they used to be. This is one of my favorite examples. So Louis C.K. created this thing called, um, oh great, I'm blanking on the name of it now, but he created what was essentially a web series that um, aired um, online, and he released it through his own platform, and every week, if you were part of his fan club, you would get a thing saying, here, there's a new episode out, and he released it without a trailer, so you didn't really know what you were gonna get. Um, he didn't tell you how many episodes there were gonna be, or even how often they were gonna drop, right? Um, he charged for it, but the amount might change from week to week, depending on demand. Um, and when it was over, it was over. Right? It was not, okay, anticipate the season finale. No, like the last episode was the last episode. Now, 
He self-funded this essentially. And the reason he did it was so that he could have the freedom to do those things, right? He knew like if Netflix funded it, they were gonna demand a trailer, right? <laughs> they were gonna demand knowing how many episodes there were gonna be. He couldn't have that kind of freedom with any kind of traditional platform. That having been said, A, it is universally praised as this, as this great work, and it even got a couple Emmy nominations, right? And the beauty of the misunderstanding around this is once it was over, once he had dropped the final episode and said, okay, that's it, the news reports around it were, oh, his show got canceled, which literally makes no sense. Like, there's no version of that sentence that actually makes sense, given what actually happened. But it's because we had this old model, and we had no way of thinking about what had actually happened. So I like to think of this as human-centered design for content. And for those of you not familiar with human-centered design, it is this idea that if you're going to build something for somebody, talk to them first, right? Find out what they need. Find out how, you know, they work. Then make something so that when you build it, they can actually use it. So does anybody know why um, hot dog buns come in packs of eight and hot dogs come in packs of ten? And I'll give you a hint. It's not some conspiracy on the part of, you know, the hot dog bun producers. Okay, so basically, for industrial reasons, when bakers were getting into the business of making packs of hot dog buns, it made more sense to put them in packs of eight. That was just sort of economically the best way to do it. Similarly, when meat packers were putting together hot dog bun, or hot dog actual packets, 10 was the one that made the most sense in terms of production costs and distribution costs. It just made the most sense. And at no point did the hot dog bun, did the bakers and the meat packers, you know, get together at their little club and say, hey, what are you doing this week? No, it just, they made it the way they made it and we got what we got. Now, if we were inventing the hot dog as a startup today, you can bet there would be all this market research showing, hey, maybe we should make the buns and the hot dogs actually be the same amount, right? And that's how they would come out, right? But that isn't how we used to do things. Today, content is a lot more like saying, we're going to figure out what you want and put it together in a way that makes sense for you, not in a way that makes sense for us. So freed from these arbitrary constraints, we're finding some interesting patterns emerge, right? And it's so gratifying to use this right now, because I don't know how many of you saw the Defenders trailer today, but that was awesome. Um, I'll be happy to talk about that after. Um, but uh, we're finding that when you free up from those constraints, we really like short, controlled bursts of entertainment. We really like this idea of a shorter season, right? And maybe even a season I can consume all at once. But there are implications for this, right? So part of what people are lamenting now with this new state of content is that, oh, we don't watch things together anymore. We, you know, we've lost, you know, if I can just dial up that episode of Daredevil whenever I want, um, I'm not gonna have this shared experience. But here's the thing about that. A, the most, you know, the highest rated things uh, in the world now, we still have the highest rated television show of all time is still happening now. It isn't a long gone thing, and it's the Super Bowl. And the highest, the second highest rated thing after that was the previous year's Super Bowl. So we still have these very shared experiences. We still yearn for those things. Sports, by the way, is content proof. <laughs> like any changes in content, it is gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine because you have to watch it live. So they're gonna be fine. Um, but the other thing we're finding is there is still demand for that communal experience. So I believe Univision and um, other folks have, have worked on apps where 
uh, for Univision, it was, it was for telenovelas. So you'd watch a telenovela, you know, and while you're watching it, you're on Twitter and people are talking about it, right? But if you didn't get to see it when that happened, they set it up so that you could watch, you know, the recording of the telenovela, and what they would do is they would have a time-synced Twitter feed so you could see what people were saying while that telenovela was going on. And you could at least peek into that shared experience, right? People still love that. And LiveJournal, of all things, had technology that allowed you to say, hey, let's all watch Gilmore Girls. And you could watch Gilmore Girls and be in the live feed talking to each other in LiveJournal while the Gilmore Girls episode played, right? So we still seek out those social experiences and we're just finding that technology to make that happen. But we're time shifting that social viewing when we need to. Another th weird thing that starts to happen is uh, the business model, right? that now we're gonna value the long tail over the instant hit. And here's what I mean, right? So if you look at the viewership uh, and the conversation, let's say, around, uh, let's say, a season of uh, Mad Men back in the day or, or The Walking Dead now, right? Season premiere happens, boom, all this traffic, all these people talking about it, and then it kind of dips for a while, and dips for a while, dips for a while, oh, season finale, oh my God, everybody's talking about it, right? And this is great for advertisers because I know you were watching then, I know you were like, you know, really into it. You uh, drop uh, a season of Daredevil, oh my god, new season of Daredevil, right? And that's it. That's terrible, right? Only if you're getting your money from advertisers. If you're Netflix and you're getting your money from subscriptions, what you want to happen as soon as you finish that episode of Daredevil is something to pop up and say, oh, you like that? Uh, why don't you watch this? And for you to say, yes, yes, I will. You only get to do that if you have a deep catalog if you have lots and lots and lots and lots of shows. It doesn't matter that the thing is dropped off so long as there's something else waiting for you at the end. Because again, I'm not trying to satisfy advertisers, I'm trying to satisfy you, right? Now that, interestingly enough, becomes another business driver for diversity. Because if I'm Netflix, my model is based on understanding as much as possible what you might like, literally you, and people like you, right? That means I need to create a greater diversity of entertainment. It actually doesn't help me to have stuff that appeals to everybody. It actually helps me more, because I'm only gonna be able to have so many of those. If I can find stuff that appeals to you and maybe the hundred of you who will keep watching and keep subscribing, all of a sudden, I need lots of different kinds of content. I need to be able to have a tag that says Canadian cat documentaries that end in murder, right? I need these super specific categories of content that I can get out to you. So all of a sudden, diversity becomes a business driver. And in the same way, you also see it become a business driver for appealing to millennials and increasingly to Generation Z because guess what? There's more of them and they're even more diverse. So, if anybody tells you there's a new normal for content, do not buy that, right? It's not necessarily shorter, it's not necessarily longer. There's only what resonates and what doesn't resonate. And what resonates, the bar for that is completely set by how much it costs to make your content and how, you know, how much audience can you find that's into that particular thing. And that bar keeps getting lower. So it's not all ball bearings these days, right? It's not just one thing. In a world that has both Medium and Twitter, that has both you know, Lord of the Rings and Snapchat, right? There is no one thing. Don't let anyone fool you. Make all of the content, right? And understand what appeals to your audience. 
So that is it for lesson five. Uh, next week, we're going to post lesson six. Uh, it's the next to last lesson. It's my favorite lesson. It's all about participatory culture. So uh, I hope you'll tune in. Until then, uh, my name is David Dylan Thomas, and this is the Future of Content Podcast.